All right. Well, you'll want to turn to your sermon outline that you can have that and follow that as we go through. We're in Matthew 19. Once again, I've changed the uh, some of the text. We're going to start at verse 13 and go through verse 22. I know your bulletin says through verse 30. We're only going to go through verse 22 uh, today. And so I'll have some catching up to do next week. But if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read verses 13 through 22. Two familiar stories that seem very different at first, but I think are actually quite closely related. So let's turn there. Turn in your Bibles, Matthew 19. Read along with me and listen uh, carefully as this is God's word. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. <coughs> and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. We come again to this great book, the Gospel of Matthew, to learn about Jesus. And once again, we ask that you would give us grace to understand what seems to be hard teaching here. Help us to hear and know that you love us far more than we love ourselves. And help us to hear and know that you're willing to take things from us in order to give us better things, kingdom things. Give us the desire to apply these truths to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. One in five Americans, actually 21%, say religion does not play an important role in their lives, according to a new NBC Wall Street Journal poll uh, that just recently came out. It's the highest percentage since the poll began asking the question uh, back in 1997. 21% said that religion is not that important to their life. Back when they started this, it was 14%, so it's gone up uh, significantly. And the poll also showed that these less religious Americans are more likely to be men, that they are more likely to have an income over $75,000 a year. They're more likely to live in the Northeast, particularly the Washington, New York, Boston corridor, uh, and, uh, or the Far West, 
and they're most likely to be under the age of 35. Men make a lot of money, live in this area, under the age of 35, and also, for the most part, single. Do you know this guy? He lives here. Forbes magazine says so. As I wrote you earlier this week, Loudoun County is uh, ranked for the second year, third year in a row, as the wealthiest county and the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And we live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., universally regarded as the most powerful city in the world. Young people work on congressional staffs helping to make decisions that affect millions of people and you go downtown and the money flows so freely you can smell it. The Washington metro area is the place where people come to make money, they come to do stuff, they come to either exercise power or learn how to exercise power. And it attracts certain types of people. And they live all around us. Think about this average guy. Wealthy, young, powerful, smart, active, and for the most part, single. He's rich. Nice shoes, tailored suit. His money is invested, his plastic is platinum, and he lives like he flies, first class. He's young. He pumps away fatigue at the gym, slam dunks old age on the court. His belly is flat, his eyes are sharp, his trademark is his energy, and death is an eternity away. He's powerful. If you don't think so, just ask him. You got questions, he's got answers. You have problems, he has solutions. You have dilemmas, he's got opinions. He knows where he's going and he's going to get there tomorrow. It's the next generation. So old guys like me had better pick up the pace or pack our bags. He's mastered the three P's of the millennials. Prosperity, posterity, and power. He is the rich, young ruler. Now, for the sake of an interesting introduction, I've probably made him sound worse than he is. More than likely, we would probably consider him to be a pretty decent guy. They probably would have considered him back in Jesus' day to be a pretty decent guy. After all, Jesus tells us he's rich in more ways than one. Uh, he was financially wealthy, but we're also told that he's morally wealthy. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it appears he's a decent person, a person characterized by moral excellence. When Jesus lists many of the Ten Commandments, essentially the second table of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, he says, bingo, I do all that, I'm good. And let's assume he's telling the truth. Because my first reaction is, why doesn't Jesus just slap him at that point? But that would be my reaction. Jesus is way better than I am. And so let's assume this rich young guy is telling the truth. And that anyone who knows him would say, yes, this man is characterized by moral excellence. He's characterized by sexual purity. He's a loving man, a great citizen. He has integrity and honesty. And we'll assume this is all true. And not only that, we're told he's wealthy. Verse 22, he had great possessions. So back then, as well as now, there's this sort of unconscious feeling that these things go together. 
that if you do good, then you'll do well. And if, you're, if you've done well, it's because you did good. I don't know how many of you remember the movie The Sound of Music. Maria, the main character, she's about to marry a rich guy, and all of a sudden she realizes she's about to marry a rich guy, and she sings a song. It's a terrible song, but she sings a song, and it goes, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What's she saying? She's saying, I must be a pretty good person, or God wouldn't be rewarding me like this. Now, of course, this is the exact opposite, the reverse of what Job's friends found out. When Job fell into poverty and disease, his friends came around him. They essentially said, somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something bad. You must have done something wrong. But there's this feeling. It's hard to describe, and nobody really wants to articulate it, but somehow if you live a good life, God's going to reward you by giving you a certain amount of prosperity. So in a sense, you're characterized by moral excellence, obviously rewarded by God by being given a prosperous life. Now, we regularly in this church put down the prosperity gospel as a false gospel. But inside, well, we really would like God to bless us with lots of stuff. We don't say that. But we don't object to it either. So, as this guy approaches Jesus, it seems like here's the ideal person that any religious leader uh, would want. They, they would say, this is the kind of guy I'm looking for. This is the kind of person I want. He's a man characterized by moral excellence, and he's a man whose life is, is put together. And, you know, he's just a very together sort of guy in all sorts of ways. And he's even willing to admit there's something he lacks. That's great to have a rich person who's willing to come to church and say, I'm still missing something. He's got it together in every way, so much so that he admits, I don't have it all together. Hard to believe, but I still lack something. And before we go any further, we have to stop and ask, what's the story doing here? Why is this event happening at this point in the story? In Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching us about the nature of the kingdom. He's talking about the character of the kingdom that he's ushering in. He focuses here on three subjects, marriage, and then children, and then possessions. And so we considered uh, last week his strong words about marriage and divorce and singleness. And so now we turn, we have to sort of back up and leave the rich young ruler for a moment and go to the beginning here to this, what I think is a very important incident in Jesus' ministry regarding children and blessing children. And from it, we learn the lesson of kingdom people. Kingdom people, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now the story itself is straightforward. Some parents have come to Jesus asking him to bless their children. And it all sounds fine. But disciples are trying to keep the parents from bringing their children to Jesus. And Jesus responds not by rebuking the parents, but by rebuking the disciples. And his rebuke reveals, I think, a very important truth. And the truth is this. Jesus, in this passage, 
he uh, takes this opportunity, uses this opportunity uh, to bless children, but he uses it to also teach his disciples the necessity of humility. The necessity of humility. And I think there's a great lesson for you and me in this. And that we have to aspire to childlike humility if we want to be in the kingdom of our Lord. Now, we don't know exactly why Jesus' disciples are rebuking the parents. The passage doesn't tell us. And Mark doesn't tell us. And Luke doesn't tell us. We have to infer what the objection was from verse 14. It may have been the disciples thought uh, Jesus too important to be bothered with dealing with these children who have been too young. It says little children. And uh, I think it's Luke says infants. Um, they're too little to understand this great message that he has, the proclamation of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel, that Israel should repent and turn to the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and receive the blessings of the kingdom of heaven and receive the Messiah. They're too little to understand all of that. Perhaps the disciples thought Jesus was too great. You know, he's the Messiah. Why are you bothering him with children? Perhaps it's their concern that by praying for these children, by taking the time to bless them, it would delay him in his journey to Jerusalem. Perhaps they thought this request is too similar to a current practice uh, being done where the people would take their children to the scribes and ask the scribes to bless their children. You know, today you see pictures of the Pope and wherever he goes and people just hold up their children to him for a blessing. And people do that to politicians too, but that's stupid. Okay? At least the Pope, you're going to get a blessing out of it, you know? Not just a photo op. Um, you know, but perhaps the disciples are thinking, well, you know, they're equating Jesus with the scribes. That's a bad thing. That's offensive. We don't want to do that. Whatever the case, we're not specifically told. But Jesus' response indicates this lesson is a lesson of humility. Jesus wants to make it clear that the kingdom that he's setting up belongs to the humble and to the weak and the powerless. And he presses that truth home to his disciples. In fact, back in chapter 18, it opened up with essentially the same lesson. And we go back there and read in verses 3 and 4, Truly I say to you, unless you tur turn and become like children... He'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This isn't the first time they've heard this. And now Jesus, speaking to his disciples, beginning to grasp that he's the Messiah of Israel, the rightful king of all of God's people. They also, it seems that they're thinking if he's the king, he's the Messiah, then we're pretty important too. You know, which of us is going to be the greatest in his kingdom? Surely he'd only be concerned with those who are great and important. And Jesus tells him, if you want to be in my kingdom, you need to have childlike humility. And Jesus is using this to uh, teach his disciples about this necessity of humility. Children are loved in Jesus' time, but they're powerless. They're socially powerless. They can't control or uh, do anything um, on their own. And so eager to get on with the business of setting up the kingdom, 
The disciples have little time for little people who wield little power. But Jesus stops, blesses the children, and tells the disciples, you've got to be like these children, this posture of humility and weakness, if you're going to be great in the kingdom. So we see that kingdom membership is uh, invariably connected with a spirit of humility. Dr. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus insisted the kingdom belongs to those who come from a position of spiritual bankruptcy, not the proud and self-seeking, but the humble and open like children are the ones who inherit eternal life and find positions near to Christ. So gospel humility is indispensable. You have to ask the question, do we have gospel humility? Or do we feel entitled? Entitlement's a big issue these days. Do we feel entitled to the grace of God? Do we feel entitled to the blessings of God so if something goes wrong in our life, we shake our fist at God as though he's done us wrong? How dare he make our lives hard? Or do we have gospel humility recognizing every good gift comes from our Father in heaven by his mercy and every difficulty is not as difficult as it ought to be because his grace is intervening? Do we have gospel humility in our relationship with Jesus, where we simply come to Christ with empty hands and say, Lord, save me, not just from my sins, but from myself, not just from my evil deeds, but also from my good deeds, because they're really not that good. Save me, I have no claims on you. That's the kind of gospel humility that Jesus is talking about, that Jesus is seeking, and he's calling on us to recognize our spiritual poverty and humble ourselves before him. And now, in great contrast to these children, to these kingdom people who are humble and weak and lowly and powerless, we're introduced once again to the rich young ruler. This is a dramatic contrast, and I think it's very intentional uh, on Matthew's part as he's inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. Now, just from reading Matthew, we don't know, A, that he's young, or, or B, that he's a ruler. Those characteristics really come uh, from the parallel passages in Mark and Luke. We don't even know he's rich till the end of the story. But come to Jesus, he does, and when he does, he comes with kingdom questions, and he's looking for kingdom answers. And that's the next blank there, verse 16 through 22, kingdom answers. We start reading at verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which one? As if it was a choice, you know. The best seven out of ten. Um, it says, Which one? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially covering the second half of the Ten Commandments. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, 
And Jesus speaks strongly to him. He nails this guy, and he basically sends him packing. Here's a guy, by modern standards, everybody would say this is about as together as a person, uh, as a person could be. He's even willing to admit he has a spiritual need. He asks a perfectly legitimate question, what do I still lack? There's something missing in my life spiritually. What do I lack? And Jesus gives him an outrageous answer and sends him packing. He shows him he's totally outside the kingdom of God. And when the disciples see it, they're astonished. They're like, what a minute, wait a minute here, stop. If he's out, who's in? We'll answer that question next week. But what's so alarming is that most of us will be in the very same boat. Even those of us who are somehow able to pull our lives together like he did, get ourselves morally together, you know, self-discipline, self-control, economically together, career-wise together. And there's plenty of people around us here in Northern Virginia who are like that, but still willing to admit, I need something. Obviously, it's possible to have all of that, even the humility to ask, even the humility to come and seek, and still be sent packing by Jesus. Why does he go away sorrowful? I actually don't think that's a great word. That's kind of weak. I think a better translation is grieved. That's sort of how the old translations have it. How can we avoid going away grieved? This man had set out on a course that looked like he had it made. He just lacked one thing. He wasn't sure what it was. He put his career together. He's climbed the ladder. He's almost to the top, and he gets to the top, and he realizes, I've almost made it. But the ladder's a little short. I need one more rung on the ladder. I can't quite reach the top. So he turns to Jesus and says, I need one more rung on the ladder. And Jesus tells him he's on the wrong ladder. And he's far from the kingdom. How are we going to avoid being sent away by Jesus grieving? In fact, I know there's some of you right now probably in a similar situation. Maybe you're not rich. Maybe you're not this together, but you're saying, what do I lack? And there's a danger that you'll be sent away grieving. And I would say, unless we understand the reasons that we see here in the text, we might be in danger of the, being the ones who are sent away uh, in the same way. So let's take a look, because I think there's at least three reasons here, and they're very serious. Three reasons he went away grieving. I'm just going to lay these out for you. They're very serious. Uh, he goes away grieving because first, he talks to the real Jesus. He talked to the real Jesus. I won't take too long on this point, but I think this is an important point. One of the reasons he's disturbed is because he's talking to the real Jesus, hearing the real message of Jesus. And when you talk to the real Jesus, you're always shocked. When you come up against his real message, you're always disturbed. In fact, I'll go this far. I think this is how you grow as a Christian. When you meet the real message of the gospel, you always find, always find, two things that are shocking. It demands more than you thought, and it offers more than you thought. When you meet the real Jesus, you realize he demands from you more than you thought, but he offers far more to you 
than you had ever dreamed. And frankly, that's what it means to grow. The way you grow as a Christian, the way you know you're growing is uh, today you see far more of what he's requiring of you than you did at this time last year. He requires a lot more than you ever thought, but he also offers far more than you ever imagined. And you know you're dealing with the real Jesus because it's bigger. Well, he demands more and he offers more. It's not exactly what you thought. And whenever you come up against uh, the real Jesus, what happens you see that, and you can only have one of two responses. You either bow down and wonder and give yourself to him, or you go away offended, one or the other. And if you go away offended, there's still hope, because you could always think about it. You know, at least you've seen the truth. You might come back. But there's one thing that's impossible, and that's to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. There's anybody here who experiences indifference. In other words, you find Christianity laughable, irrelevant, boring. If you find Christianity to be the sweet, comforting thing that's nice to dip into occasionally, or you find it kind of vaguely guilt-producing or anxiety-ridden, you haven't met the real Jesus. You're in the grip of indifference. When you meet the real Jesus, he disturbs you, he afflicts you, he challenges you, he faces you, to face, uh, he forces you to face your real self. He demands more than you thought, but he also offers more than you thought. And that's the first thing. This guy comes up and he runs right smack into the real Jesus. The second thing we see is that Jesus smashes his false assumptions. So we're going to see him smash false assumptions. Second week in a row, he takes down false assumptions. He smashes his religious views. What's really instructive for us is the religious views that this young man has were not uncommon uh, in his day, and they're just uh, as uh, absolutely common today. He came knowing that he's lacking something. He needs some kind of spiritual experience, at least. He's not sure about his relationship with God. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think that he meant that he didn't know it, I think he meant he's not sure about it. He's not sure about his relationship with God. He lacked a certain kind of assurance, a certain kind of peace about his life, both now, his life now, and for eternity. So he comes and asks. And the way he approaches it is based on two false assumptions. At first glance, he looks like he's very sincere. But the fact of the matter, he approaches God on the basis of two false assumptions, assumptions that Jesus utterly smashes. And these two false assumptions are Christianity is something that you can add and Christianity is something you can do. First of all, he assumes Christianity is something you can just add to your life, you know, a way of filling out your life. Let's say you're a conductor over a symphony and you're at rehearsal and you're listening to the music and one of the notes isn't coming out right. I can't hear one of the lines. People say, that's kind of what my life is like. Something's not right. Something's missing. It's what I need. I have a pretty good life, but I need to sort of fill it out, round it out. I need to add something. And this man comes to Jesus, verse 20, and says, what do I still lack? He's basically saying, what can I add? And Jesus' response is to make an outrageous request. What Jesus is saying is Christianity isn't something you add. 
Christianity is more like an explosion that destroys everything you have to make way for something new. Christianity isn't something you add, it's starting completely fresh. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He wasn't a rich young man, he was a rich old man. And he comes to Jesus, but he essentially says the same thing. You're a good teacher, I'm a ruler in Israel, but I feel like I lack something. What do I still lack? What does Jesus say? You must be born again. You have to be completely redone. Everything has to be smashed. To this young man, he's saying, you don't need one more rung to get to the top of the ladder. What I have changes everything. What I have smashes the ladder. It's a whole new approach. And what Jesus is saying is Christianity is not something you add. It's something that completely transforms. You can't just bring Jesus Christ in as an addition. He doesn't just fill out your life. He's not another book on your shelf. He's not another file on your hard drive that somehow gives you more power. He's not something you just add and say, wow, look at how much more power my programs have now. He's a whole new program, he's a whole new operating system, a whole new computer, a new network, a new internet, a new web, whatever the analogy is totally new. He's not an addition. Second thing this young man does is think that Christianity is something you do. He says, what good thing should I do? What good deed must I do? And again, Jesus is blunt. He doesn't answer about the, the, the deed. He, he says, why are you asking about what is good? There's only one who is good. In a minute, we'll see he asks the man to do something utterly impossible. But Jesus here is saying, I want you to know that getting to God is not a matter of goodness. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody can be moral enough. And look at the furious logic here. He says, take all of your wealth, rich young man, sell it all, give it to the poor, follow me. What's he doing? I think it's brilliant. He's basically, oh, okay, you obey all the Ten Commandments, do you? Well, let's just start with the first one. Let's just take the first one. The first one is have no other gods before me. All right, let's try that out. I want you to give away all your money because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, says so. So how you doing? You know, have no other gods before me. How's that going? God just told you to give everything away. And I think what he's saying is if God's really first in your life, everything, anything else is trivial in comparison to God. Everything and everything else is a trinket. Nothing can be compared to him, to his cause, to his heart. Nothing. Do you have any gods before him? What's he doing? He's saying, my dear friend, Luke tells us he loved this man. He looked at him and loved him. So he's not angry at him. He's not mad at him. He says, nobody loves God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nobody loves their neighbor as themselves. Don't you see your problem, rich young man, is not that you need a little more goodness. Your problem is you won't admit what you know deep down inside that you're not that good. You can almost hear Jesus saying, the reason you come to me because you know at some level you're not that good. And I think the rich young man knew that. He doesn't admit it, so Jesus is trying to break through. No one is good. You think Christianity is something you add? It's No, it's a revolution. You think Christianity is something you do? No, it's something you receive. 
Let me put it this way. Every other religion in the world, every other philosophy in the world, even so-called common sense, divides all humanity like this. Up here is the good, and down here is the bad. Up here is the moral, down here is the immoral. Up here is the nice, down here is the naughty. Up here is the religious, down here is the irreligious. It varies a little bit, but basically everybody sees that there's a line there uh, somehow. And Jesus comes by and says, nope, the real line isn't a horizontal line. It's a vertical line. He says, I want you to know there are two ways to God. Both nice and, and nasty people can do it on their own efforts, or both nice and nasty people, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how great, no matter how awful, can come on a totally different basis. You can come on the basis not of your efforts, but on the basis of my efforts. Until you see the real line cutting through the center of humanity is a vertical line, a vertical attitude towards God. It's not a horizontal line that separates good and bad actions, but a vertical line that separates us from God by our actions, either depending on our actions or depending on Jesus' actions. And no matter how you're good, good you are on this side, you're not. It's only relative in comparison to other bad people. You're just a little less wrong, a little less nasty, a little less immoral. And yet on this side of the line, no matter how bad you are, you can come. In other words, this young man is good, relatively speaking, relative to other people. He's good. What's wrong is his doctrine of goodness. And so as a result, he goes away grieving. Jesus has smashed his false assumptions. The same false assumptions that virtually everyone else has. And I would suggest to you, even though Jesus has smashed his false assumptions, that's not the biggest reason he goes away grieved. I think the biggest reason he's grieved is that Jesus has at some level agreed with him. Jesus says, yes, you lack one thing. And what's that? What does he lack? It's not the giving away of the money. It's treasure in heaven. You see, he has the wrong treasure. And that's the next blank. He has the wrong treasure. Jesus comes and says, you have to get rid of what's keeping you from me. You have to put me first. And it's the only way to get treasure in heaven. So what's treasure in heaven? I don't think it's so much stuff. I think treasure in heaven, if you really look into it, means two things. I need to be really quick here. But first, it means that he is your treasure in heaven. You get Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus is your treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying, I want you to give everything away. And I think what he means is, I want you to see if you have me and only me, you're rich. And not just rich towards people, rich towards God. He's saying, rich young man, I know you have the greatest estate in the county, but it's nothing compared to my forgiveness. It's nothing compared to my righteousness. It's nothing compared to being adopted into the family of God. It's nothing compared to what I can give you. It's not what you can do, it's what I can do in you. Don't you see? With your treasure, earthly treasure, thieves can steal it. Moth and rust can corrupt it. What I give you is permanent. 
if you don't see that I alone am good. If you rely on me for your standing before God, you become good in me. You'll see that I'm your treasure, I'm your righteousness, I'm your spotless record before God. And if you have that, it changes your attitude towards everything. Money no longer is sacred. It's nothing compared to treasure in heaven. And you're free from worry, and you're free from envy, and you're free uh, for generosity. If he's your treasure, it changes everything. Second, you have to understand that when you make him your treasure in heaven, then you become his treasure. You become his treasure. Jesus says, you remember, he sends his disciples out, and they come back, and they've been out doing cool stuff, and miracles and casting out demons and they come back and say this is great you know we're doing miracles we're casting out demons this is cool this is awesome and it says luke 10 jesus tells them nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven where are their names written in heaven that's an old testament reference Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the high priest went before God. He had the names of the children of Israel engraved on precious stones uh, on his breastplate over his heart when he went before God. He went before God with the, the names of the people of Israel, the tribes, the people he was representing before God. And Jesus is our high priest. In Isaiah, God says to the prophet uh, Isaiah, he tells him to talk to Israel in Isaiah 49. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. What God's saying is if you make my son your treasure, that makes you my treasure if you make my son your treasure that makes you my treasure and now when i see you i see absolute beauty i see you radiant in christ i see you righteous in christ it's not the greatest thing it's not the best thought that you can have that god looks at you and sees you radiant and righteous and beautiful in christ you live with an awareness that in Christ you are his treasure? Or do you take your identity from your bank account or your dress size? You see the freedom that comes. Jesus says you'll only be free if you see that with me and me alone. You're rich. And he, he's saying to this rich young man, I have to be your riches. My life poured out must be your true treasure because I've done all this for you. I have to be your goodness I have to be your righteousness. I have to represent you before God or else you cannot come with me. He isn't adding things to an otherwise good life. Saying, coming to me changes your life. It changes everything. And that's why the gospel never comes in and just adds. It comes in and basically destroys what you have and starts over again. Jesus says, you must be born again. You have to start all over. You have to make me your king. It's the only way. You're flawed. 
Your morality and goodness aren't enough. Your own goodness, morality, and righteousness can't save you. Your own power and possessions can't save you. Only I can save you. Make me your treasure, and I'll make you his treasure. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And once again, we've seen your son Jesus. Open our eyes that we can see our true selves, we can see our sin, we can turn to our Savior. We look at you and say, Jesus, we came expecting a little additional help. Now we see that you have to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. You have to be our alpha and Omega are everything. We ask that you would make it so. Give us the faith to leave our treasure behind, to make you our treasure, and rejoice that you make us his treasure. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let the little children come. Receive God's blessing from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. God bless you. We'll see you next week.